Let us pray together. Dear God, we are amazed and we marvel that 26 centuries after you spoke these words to your people in Babylon, that their vision still, your vision still speaks to us. And so, though we struggle sometimes to understand your Bible, we wrestle with it, we don't know how to receive it always, we thank you above all that it brings us to you and to your vision for our lives. And with thanks, we say in Christ's name, Amen. So for the second time in uh, a couple years, we've chosen a verse to guide our congregational life and mission together. And in light of all of the things that have been happening in our city recently, the good and the wonderful, we hear that our city is being renewed and has attracting new people like never before. We're also reading in the headlines, if you opened your paper this morning, of terrible violence, loss of life. And perhaps because of this, our church board felt the Holy Spirit drawing us to choose the verse that we chose for this year to help us to remember and to refocus on our mission of engagement with our city. So listen to the words of our verse. But seek the welfare of the city. You're going to have to help me out. I already forgot. (laughs) But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. If you look at it in your bulletin at the top of the page, the inside cover there, you'll see that it can be divided into four chunks. And just as you helped me learn it this morning, we're going to help each other learn it together. All right? And I will do my best not to add extra words as I did in the fridge magnet that uh, was given to all of you. All right, let's try this. If you'll repeat after me, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Wonderful. You can say wonderful too. <laughs> so I want to begin this morning by looking at the context in Jeremiah 29, from which we, from where we have found our verse, and. 
If you find it helpful, you can turn to this passage at this time. Jeremiah 29. And special thanks to Emma for reading through some very, very difficult names. And my counsel to every reader is just sound confident. (laughs) Just sound confident and you'll be good. And we'll all think, oh, that's how you say that. (laughs) So a little bit of background for this passage. For generations now, prophets have been calling God's people to turn away from their idols, from their weapons, from their foreign treaties, and to place their trust back in God. And for generations now, prophets have been calling the people of Israel to stop oppressing the poor. For centuries now, the prophets of God have been calling on the people to be the contrast community that God intends them to be. A community of God's shalom and holy living. And no one listens. And so, like a loving parent sometimes does, God gives up the people of Israel to the consequences of their own terrible choices. And if we have been parents, we know the pain and agony when that happens. So six centuries after or before Jesus, The Babylonian army invades Jerusalem and massacres many in Judah's royal house. The temple is looted and destroyed. And the Ark of the Covenant containing the Ten Commandments disappears entirely from history. That is, unless we count its cameo appearance in Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's the ark, by the way, that is mentioned in that movie. And so Judah's officials, its priests, its artisan class are all forced now on a 500-mile march, a long march to the great city of Babylon. And only the poor and the weak are left behind, and among them is the prophet Jeremiah. Alright, so that's the setting. And so in verse 1 today, as often happens in the Bible, we are again reading other people's mail. This is a letter written from Jeremiah to the exiles in faraway Babylon. Think about that. Sent through some emissaries to people who have just experienced a catastrophe of 9-11 proportions. Shell-shocked is what they are. Another prophet, just a little more context, has just told them that God's going to bring them back to Jerusalem soon and very soon. But in verse 10, Jeremiah tells them, no, it's not so. God intends for you to stay there 
for 70 long years. So go ahead, Jeremiah tells them in verse 5, build your houses, plant your gardens, have your children, and seek the welfare of the city of Babylon. Think about that, folks. Seek the welfare of the city of Babylon and pray for its people, your enemies, your oppressors. Pray for them. And so we have to wonder if this is the very first time in all of human history that someone ever had such an idea. Pray for your enemies. Jesus, of course, taught this kind of radical prayer and He models it on the cross. Remember? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But the idea of praying for our enemies starts in the city of Babylon. Now, Jeremiah says one more astonishing thing in verse 4. In this city's welfare, in Babylon's welfare, I want you to find your own welfare. In other translations, if you look at them, say things like, seek the peace, seek the prosperity, seek the good of Babylon. And what they're all struggling to translate is the infinitely richer Hebrew word, shalom. Shalom, prosperity, peace, goodness, all of those things rolled into one. And let's just pause here this morning to remember that shalom in the Bible is so much more than just the absence of violence in war. That's how we usually talk about peace. The absence of violence in war. No, no, no. Shalom, God's shalom is also the presence of three things that represent God's overarching intentions for all of creation. And the first one is physical well-being. In Genesis 37, Jacob asks Joseph to go check on the shalom of his brothers. Are they okay? Do they have enough food to eat? Second, shalom is relational well-being. Between people and between nations. In Psalm 41, a close friend is called the man of my shalom. So the next time you see your dear friend, you can say, you are the woman of my shalom. And we can ask each other, how is the shalom of your marriage or your family or your classroom? Finally, shalom is ethical well-being. Honesty, integrity, holiness, 
justice. Zechariah 8.16 says, Judge with shalom. If only we did that in this land. Judge with shalom. So in our verse today, Jeremiah is calling God's people in the city of Babylon to work and to pray, don't miss that one, to pray for the physical, relational, and ethical well-being of their neighbors. And it's in doing this, he says, that they will discover their own shalom as well. And discover their own shalom, they sure do. Babylon, this is fascinating. For the Jewish people, becomes one of the most generative times in their whole history. Synagogues, living faith communities apart from the temple are invented in Babylon. And after King Cyrus decrees that they all can go home now, you know what? Many actually choose to stay. In fact, historians believe that probably the majority of them stayed. You see, after working and praying for their city's shalom for 70 years, God transforms their sense of being in exile into a sense of being at home. It's fascinating to reflect a bit on East Chestnut's founding story in light of the Babylon story that we've just heard. Back in the late 1800s, Mennonites began to begin to join our nation's great population shift from the farm to the city. Our women come into Lancaster City to work as domestics in homes and to work as factory workers in some of the nearby factories. And although the city is still regarded as the devil's territory, and you can find that in the literature of the time, these folks begin to work and to pray for the well-being of Lancaster City. And God begins to transform their sense of being in exile into a sense of being at home. And then in 1879, a plot of land at Chestnut and Sherman is donated. 
And you can ask Harold Kilheffer who that was. And the East Chestnut Street Mennonite Meeting House is born. The very first Mennonite church in our city. Its attendance quickly grows from 40 to 300. And a new sanctuary, the one that we are worshiping in right now, was built in 1906. And this little piece of trivia always captures my imagination. It's believed at the time to be the largest Mennonite church in the whole nation. So for a brief shining moment, (laughs) there we were. But then the folks in Kansas said, no way. Now these first urban Mennonites, they know well the Bible stories about how cruel and unjust the city can be. Cities like Babel, and Sodom, and Gomorrah. But nothing helps us to see things in the Bible more than a change of context. To see new things. And worshiping here at Chestnut and Sherman, do they start to notice that our Bible actually begins in a garden, but ends in a city? That's a wonderful point from Chuck and Daryl's sermon back in 07. The Bible begins in a garden, but it ends in the city of God that we sang about in that beautiful hymn just now. Do they begin to notice passages like Psalm 46, where God is said to be fully present and active in the city? Or do they notice... Matthew 23, where Jesus weeps over the city and speaks of his desire to gather in all of its people. Or do they come across God's vision to Paul in Corinth that says, there are still many people here in this city who are my people. Or do they notice that it's precisely in the city of Babylon in Jeremiah 29.13 that God says, it's in the city that God says, seek me and you will find me. But where? Who of us hasn't wondered where to find God here in Lancaster lately during these months of shootings and violence and fear? Where is God actually to be found here in the city? Well, ironically, it's no cosmic secret. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells us exactly where. Whenever someone's hungry and you share your food. Whenever someone's thirsty and you give a warm drink. Whenever someone's a stranger and you extend welcome. 
Whenever someone's freezing and you share your coat. Whenever someone's up in county prison and you come visiting. I'm telling you, dear chestnutters, you did it to me. And not just for me. You did it to me. Seek me in the city and you will find me. And God has chosen not to make the high and the mighty, but the hungry and the lonely and the imprisoned the special portals of divine presence. And being a church that prays for and loves these folks probably isn't going to lead to Hollywood moments where the heavens open and we hear a great chorus of angels singing and the violins kick in when we do these things. But actually, probably things more quiet will happen. Like coming home from a community meal and sensing in a deep way that we've just met Jesus again. Like feeling a deep sense of peace that comes when our will is realigned with God's will. Like caroling and hearing a neighbor on East Marion Street say to us, you will never know, you will never know how much your singing has meant for me. Still, if you're anything like me, you still may wonder, is all of our prayer and work for this city really worth it? Does it amount to a hill of beans? Does it make a difference? And then recently, one of you in an email sent me those two pictures that I sent to you twice. Just wanted to make sure you'd look at them. And what do we see in the first photo? A man trudging through the snow and seemingly just making a mess of a pristine valley of freshly fallen snow. That's all we see. But then in that second photo, the lens falls, perhaps taking the view of God. And we see that that man is actually creating a design of astonishing beauty and complexity in the snow. He's an English man and he uses a compass and does his work. And in the same way, dear friends, let us ask ourselves, can we trust as well that God is guiding all of our little efforts and all of the little efforts of all the other faith communities here in Lancaster City 
to create something bigger and more beautiful than we can ever hope or imagine. May it be so. Amen.